Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with the critically acclaimed and internationally awarded photojournalist, Andrew Quilty. Tune as we chat about his incredible journey from growing up in Sydney's lower North Shore to living and documenting the highs and lows of life in Afghanistan over his eight years living in the country. And his latest book, This Is Afghanistan, which I was honored to have designed for him, now available to buy today, October 24th, through mup.com.au. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Vince. Hey, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so cool. We're in the Sydney studio, face-to-face, which is really nice. And we weren't here that long ago uh, working on your book. Um, this is uh, Afghanistan, which is coming out in October 24th this year. Um, really excited about that coming out. But we just thought it would be a great opportunity to catch up with you and hear about your life and how you became who you are today. At the service. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Um, it's really, really a real honor to be sitting with you here. I know you've been in much more scary places in your life. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Design studio in Alexandria is... It's pretty raw. Out of my comfort zone. And I, I, I apologize for the dogs. They, were, they like you very much and, <laughs> and, and they maul you as soon as you walk in the door. They, and they also uh, helped edit the book. Yeah, they sat on certain spreads when they mm. were on the floor. And we had to choose those spreads. I know. Wing, Wing who's a um, designer who we work with too on the book, is a wonderful guy and he loves them and pampers them as well. So uh, he sends his love. Um, one of Australia's most highly de- decorated and regarded photojournalists. Did you ever cross your mind growing up in Sydney's Lower North Shore that this would be your your life and your career? Absolutely not. I I had I, I suppose what you call a pretty typical upbringing for one who is brought up on the the Lower North Shore of Sydney and was um, I, I didn't really look that far outside of my own world in in Mossman yeah. where I grew up and. Um, didn't realise how lucky I was to be growing up in a place like that, never wanting for anything, um, going to a good school, always having food on the table, um, always having clothes on my back, um, and, you know, the, the, the best of everything. And I think it wasn't until, you know, as is the case for a lot of people, I got out into the world and... Um, met people with different worldviews and different experiences that I began to realise um, that my upbringing was relatively rare in, in comparison to um, 99% of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, Afghanistan came uh, for me oh, about 15 years after I left high school. But, um, it was never more apparent that the disparity between my upbringing and and that of people growing up in Afghanistan than it was when, when I um, spent time there. Yeah, incredible. An incredibly safe place, isn't it, Sydney? Um, 
and I know so we moved here back in 20, 2003, um, how, how even compared to London, it, it's safe and, you know, not mm. the crime levels that we have o- over there. Yeah, it's always astounding to me the, um, the kinds of stories you hear on the news relating to, to violence in, in Sydney, um, you know, which are uh, in context, in the context of Sydney, they are violent and involve um, uh, far less casualties, um, um, less, less, you know, sort of um, the, the violence or the level of the violence is smaller in magnitude and things. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, I suppose that's what we all, um, or part of the reason we all love Sydney and Australia. It's a little bit different for um, a journalist, I suppose. You have to look a little harder, or as a photographer, um, you have to look a little harder for the subtleties in mm. in your environment to yeah. to um, find find the stories you, that are interesting to tell. Let's talk about how you got in photography, but how, you know where you went from your school, high school in Sydney, um, to then you know that that progression. Soon after I left school, where the the one subject I really loved there was visual art. Um, and just before I left, I was given a, left high school, I was given a, an old uh, Nikon F3 film camera by an uncle of mine who was a photographer. And um, not for any particular reason, I wasn't especially interested in photography, but um, I was, I suppose I was creative. And um, so I suppose that was the reason my uncle gave a camera to me rather than my sister or other cousins. Um, and I suppose it sparked something in the back of my mind. Um, it wasn't until a year after I left school, after um, spending six months trying to study uh, design at uh, College of Fine Arts in Sydney and, and finding that that wasn't really for me, that I decided to travel around Australia with a couple of mates and I took that uh, Nikon F3 with me. Um, and a, you know, a handful of rolls of film and um, without really any expectation of what I was going to do with it. But I, um, you know, I did what anyone does um, on a, a holiday or a trip away with friends or family. And I, I just took very rudimentary photographs of friends and of, of the friends and the places we went and the people we met and things. And by the end of that trip, um, six months later, I thought, oh, this is... This is something that um, is creative, not, but not only is it is it creative. I can envisage making a, a career out of this. Um, I think when I left high school, I, I very much felt that I was in a a pipeline that shot people out from high school into uh, you know proper jobs like careers, yeah, um, like law or economics or medicine. Um, for the you know the top students, mm-hmm. um, and you know for the for the slightly um, inf- less um, uh, less smart or less high scoring students, um, you know maybe like architecture or uh, industrial design or you know, or for the more creative um, students, and but none of them those really fit. For, they didn't feel right for me. At the same time, I didn't really feel as though being an artist was a legitimate um, career path and so it wasn't until I found photography that I thought oh maybe there's a here's a balance of the two things the creativity and and like a legitimate career and so I I went into um, photography I studied photography at um, TAFE in in Ultimo in Sydney. 
And at the same time, I was working at a bottle shop where um, one of one of the regular customers there was a a, um, a photo editor at Fairfax who took an interest in me and my photography, and he would bring in rolls of film for me to to um, take away and use and. And um, one day he just offered for me to come into the, the office at Fairfax. Um, he, he worked for the Australian Financial Review as a picture editor. And, um, I, you know, just, just for some work experience. And I, I came in um, and he plonked me down in front of a computer to look at all the, the photos that came in on, the, on their Fairfax sort of internal um, photographic archive system. And um, I remember that day, I'd, I think I'd had a long surf in the morning and, uh, and I... Um, after a couple of hours of looking at this this screen, I fell asleep at the table. Jesus, <laughs> nice one. But um, I don't know. Something happened. I, I got on well with the people there, and I started to, you know, go along on some photo shoots, and and eventually shot some, you know, small portrait assignments myself. And after a while, uh, after hanging around for long enough, they um, they started paying me. Mm. So I had my first um, job as a photographer. It was interesting we were talking the other day because you said that your your grades and your final year grades were like 92 or something like that, very high. So And your dad is a lawyer or was a lawyer. Um, so it kind of made sense that you would go into that profession. But it's interesting how, like I personally did absolutely appalling at school, you know, in terms of my grades. I don't think I've got any grades. Um, but design and, and, and art school was kind of a, default or that was my I guess safety net thank God um, but you're obviously smart and creative in sort of in equal measure which is really probably unusual isn't it? Mm, I guess so but, I mean I was like I got 92 I, I, I think all my myself and my friends and family were all surprised when I got that because I <laughs> was never really one of the smart kids at school and and to be honest 92 in comparison to my friends at school who were all getting like 97 and above I was still a a minnow in comparison oh to them. God. Um, so yeah, I never really considered myself a, a, a smart student or a good a good student. You know, I, did, I think I just sort of chose my subjects well and and did did well in the yeah, the yeah. lower rung subjects. Well, let's go back too because you said you're taking photography on that surf trip you went on. Uh, was that prior? That was with film, and that's prior to digital, I guess, or was digital around then? No, it was. That was before digital. That was in 2001. And in, interesting, too, because I remember I was around before computers and, and before digital uh, photography. So every shot was far more considered than what it is today. Like, we all are photographers. I mean, every phone, you know, a smartphone these days has a camera on it, and incredibly good camera, too. Um, how do you think that the world's changed in that, in, in that regard? Or how do you, do you still take a shot with that same kind of, film experience where you're more selective or do you just shoot the hell out of everything like you know you do now with digital no it's definitely not as special as it was you don't attribute the same much of value to that push of the the, the shutter that you did um back in the film days where every frame counts and mm. you know you're shooting often quite expensive film even even in a small 35 mil format where you know each click of the shutter is a dollar um Whereas with digital, you you know it's it's infinite, yeah. And it it not only does it change the way I mean it, it changes the way you shoot in a number of ways, but something I have noticed in looking at 
the book that we produced together in comparison to other books on Afghanistan that were shot before film yep. or, or post-film but, but with film um, is the, the level of um, perfection, technical perfection that we all seem to demand from digital images. And I, it almost... I feel now, after putting that book together and seeing the, the relative... Um, or at least the, the the struggle for compositional and um, technical perfection is very evident evident in there to me. Yeah, and I look at older older photography books where uh, that were shot on film, and they they seem a lot freer to me. The images seem a lot freer, a lot mm. more spontaneous, a lot um, more imperfect. And I'm mm. to me now, that's what I want to do. I want to like limit myself. Um, to, you know, rather than shooting a hundred frames of one subject, so you make sure you get it right, shoot a couple and use use the the best one of those, and and you know maybe it won't be pin sharp, or maybe it'll be it won't be perfectly well cons- um, uh, composed or or exposed, but there's something about the limiting, um, mm. the amount of exposure you give to a any given scene yeah. that. Um, almost um, attribute, attributes more value to it yeah. in a way. Uh, it, it, it seems logical in my head. It, it, it may not to others. But, um, yeah, I'm actually – I have in my car today a couple of old film cameras that I'm taking to get serviced because oh, I want to cool. go and I want to get them out and, yeah, be less um, worried about perfection, technical perfection. Well, films come back. It's like vinyls come back, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, there was a time there where it was incredibly scarce. Mm. Um, I really felt for you. I remember the day that we, you came in the first day uh, when we were doing the book together. And uh, you came in with, a, with a, like a big box of like um, hard drives and images. And I, th- I think you said there was like over a million images. And I, the book has been edited down. How many? How many? Images in the book, 170? 180 something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was shocking. I, I remember seeing your face when we were saying you're going to have like 30 images per chapter. And you like, look horrified. <laughs> <laughs> and and how that editing process, I know I avoided a lot of those meetings. Um, mm-hmm. but you and Wing sat there for days um, going through that. And cha- you brought friends in, you know, family, et cetera, in, and, and people you respect in terms of their view and, and contributing to kind of the editing. Um, it's quite, it was quite a process. Was, oh. it, was it quite confronting? It was confronting and laborious and tiring <laughs> and like emotionally draining. Yeah, yeah it was, it was that's Wing. I know that he has an effect on people. But. Mm. Well, no, <laughs> it, it's his, it, it was his patience and his, um, yeah. um, you know, I never felt in a hurry to, to get it done, to, to make decisions. And, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, uh, yeah, I think, I, think uh, I worked it out. It was about 320,000 pictures that I had to you know choose from which obviously gets culled down in, yeah. in um, a few different um, steps in the process and I think in the end it was it was about 20,000 that I actually considered for for the book Fuck. and then you know from that down to 1,000 and 500 yeah let's come back to the book we're going to come back in a second about that but just talk about your career how it unfolded um, working at Fairfax and you starting to get those commission jobs uh what types of what types of jobs were they for Fairfax? You mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, in the beginning, it was very um, you know basic 
portraits of businessmen to go with a story about you know their business or yeah. uh, whatever. It was probably it was. exciting for you at that time. Oh, it was very exciting, and I felt like I'd been given a great deal of responsibility, and I you know put a lot of effort into it. Um, and then um, you know, and then to see them published the next day in a national newspaper it was a huge thrill, and it still is. Um, and then slowly, I was given more and more responsibility. Um, by the end of the time, I um, just before I left Fairfax, I was the, the star photographer for the Financial Review magazine. So I was um, shooting a lot of portraits of um, uh, you know senior politicians and business leaders, and occasionally um, people in the arts and things. And um, but some you know high high profile people. I shot a, a number of prime ministers and. Um, actors and artists and, and things. You, you, I remember during the process of the book, you th- you said, "Oh, I photograph me, right?" And then <laughs> you showed me this image, and I was like, y- "You swore," but I was like, "Are you sure? I don't remember that." And I would have remembered that. And there's some other guy. <laughs> some other Jesus, guy. <laughs> much better looking than you. Yeah, much better looking. <laughs> a lot more hair. Um, we'll, we'll actually mention him in the podcast at the end. I think <laughs> give him a, a shout out. <laughs> But like, I thought you were a more visual guy than that. <laughs> it was a long time ago, and I don't know how I, I mucked that up. But oh, that my was, apologies. That was so funny. <laughs> I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Um, so you were there for six years, surrounded by some of the country's leading and highly respected photographers. So I guess they all kind of rubbed off on you in terms of um, their kind of, you know, their experience and all that. Um, you mentioned that you 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 covered the Cronulla. Uh, riots. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Mm. So I wasn't actually, um, that wasn't a commissioned assignment that mm-hmm. happened on the weekend. I didn't work on the weekends, but I had, um, I'd been surfing for a while at that point and I'd been, I'd, I'd started to recognise this notion of localism in, in yeah. surf culture. And um, as most people in Sydney had become aware the week before the the riots, um, there was this uh, protest planned, um, and it started started getting more and more media attention. And um, these these um, text messages that had, were getting sent around um, surfaced, and it was starting to look more and more nefarious. The the um, you know the, the people who were behind organising it, and um, and so I thought, well, I, I should head out there and see what's going on not really expecting much to happen and so I, t- I turned up there and I um with my camera I was shooting black and white film at the time and a bunch of the other photographers that I'd started to who had who had actually taken me under their wing um at the time other press photographers were there covering it for the for their newspapers you know maybe like one photographer from um the three or four main newspapers in, in Sydney and then as the day sort of started to unfold and it became apparent that it was becoming something quite significant, like more and more photographers were turning up and getting called, like, you need to get down here, this is serious. And um, so what had, t- what had begun as like a kind of an Australia Day sort of vibe, Australia Day, Invasion Day, depending on um, who you ask, yeah. um, it sort of descended into this, you know, maelstrom in the end of yeah, what, why was that what was the riot about the riot was a response to i mean i think it had been building up over a number of number of years but the the real catalyst in the end was when um i think a weekend before a couple of weekends before 
um, a bunch of um, guys with um, Lebanese heritage had um, had beaten up a lifeguard um, on the beach, and um, the, the the locals wanted to make a stand, you know, saying, you know, this this sort of behaviour has been going on for too long. We're we're gonna um, we're gonna root it out, uh-huh. and um, so that was at the at the at the bottom of it, and so. It, in the end, it wasn't just Cronulla locals who wanted to, to make this stand. It attracted all these um, other elements, you know, neo-Nazis and um, and the like from, you know, who had nothing to do with Cronulla, but yeah. who wanted to um, kind of capitalise on the situation and, and, and probably foment a bit of the um, that um, the violence and, and anger that, that um, ended up... Um, coming out on the day and a similar thing happened in Maroubra didn't it like a few years later um, the bra, bo- bra boys or whatever they're called the, a similar thing happened um, well there was actually a bit of a re- there was retaliation from the um, from elements of the um, I guess the um, Lebanese community Lebanese Australian community in the western suburbs retaliated that afternoon, in fact, and they a, a bunch of like a, a motorcade, basically, or, a, or a, 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 um, a caravan of cars from Western Sydney came to Maroubra and, and started um, smashing in cars and uh-huh. and um, beat a few people up, and um, so that was the immediate sort of retaliation. And then and then over the coming days, there are a few little flare ups um, around the place, and before the you know while the police were trying to tamp, tamp it all down. You're a mild, gentle guy. How does it feel like being in that kind of in the heat of that tension and that kind of aggress- aggression? It's um, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance for me because I'm I hate watching violence. Like I I, um, I remember you know when I, when I first started going out, um, you know, drinking and partying and um, seeing you know punch ups on the street and things, and it always mm. um, the the there was a very um, visceral um, effect that it had on me. You know, it would make me very anxious, and um, I hated being around it. Um, but then, as a photographer, you have this um, that, that that instinct sort of needs to get flipped on its head, and you need to kind of go towards it and, and view it. So it was it was um, there was a bit of contradiction there for me. And um, but I, I found that having a purpose for being there and for and for witnessing it, yeah. it, it that um, that toned down the, that visceral um, reaction that I that I had to it. And how, how do you, you you went there knowing that there was something about to unfold? But what were you looking for? Like, what was were you looking for? The shot, a shot. Were you just trying to capture the whole thing? Yeah, I, I think um, based on what I'd learnt from the photographers that I started looking up to early in my career. I realised that you can't really make a plan for what you want to get out of any given event that you have no control over. Mm-hmm. So you really go in, you go in with an open mind, and you have to, to just capture what you see, what unfolds. And um, having said that, you also need to kind of anticipate things before they happen. So you, that means being, and this is all stuff you can't really, you have to learn on the job. Um, and it's all about instinct and yeah. things you, so you have to you know keep your 
keep your ears open and and watch watch the crowd what's what's going on keep your finger on the pulse like um uh, trying to sense changes in mood or um um you know any little shifts in the atmosphere that that um that might give you an edge over you know the the crowd even to um you know if if you start hearing people talking on the phone saying um you know we're heading this way you'll you know you'll go with them or you'll get there yeah. before them um and 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 then when things are kicking off you're just reacting to what's happening around you so that you know you hear a smashing bottle and you obviously turn around to look at what's going on and um or um you know obviously the the sight on that day of of hundreds or thousands of people running down a street is is um you know a pretty unavoidable telltale sign that something's happening and and you need to go with them so that's the, is that the first time you experienced that type of confrontational situation versus shooting business people you know portraits of business mm-hmm. people like how did you how did you adjust to that because i mean i you talked the other day about the size of your lens that mm-hmm. <laughs> Like I would have a massive telescopic lens be mm. like ten miles away from any kind of confrontation, mm-hmm. but you had um, well, I don't know what you call it. Just is it a fifty mil lens or what is it? Yeah, thirty five mil lens. Yeah, yeah, it was a. I remember it was a fixed thirty five. Oh, maybe it was a seventeen to thirty five mil lens. Which yeah. means you got to be right in the heart of yeah. the situation. Yeah, you got to be there with the people you're photographing, not not back. Um, out of harm's way, shooting from you know yeah. the safety of the across the road or, or whatever. But how do you do that? How do you be part of that without being a victim yourself? Yeah, good question. I um, I think you know the and it, and it changes. It has changed the relationship of a photographer or a or a reporter of any kind to the people that they're around or the events that they're covering. Once upon a time, I think there was a very clear delineation between um, the photographed and the f- photographers, and people sort of respected that that delineation. Mm-hmm. Whereas more and more these days, particularly in um, conflict situations and wars, um, that um, that impartiality that photographers once had is not honoured as much as it was, and you know you are often seen as um, you know, among the people that you are with and therefore fair game for um, whatever violence. Oh, um, on that day, I don't think, um, you know, you're also you're trying to blend in with the crowd and um, without being complicit in what a crowd like that is doing, a mob like that is doing, you, you need to, you know, for your own safety, you need to blend in and that means... Um, not, um, I guess, not taking a stand against what's happening. Um, at least I, I never, I never saw anything really that I, I thought like, okay, I need to step in here before someone's killed. Um, mm. There were a couple of photographers who were put in that situation on that day and who did react accordingly. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a very um, tricky um sort of social um, situation to to try to navigate and and in the end it's it all comes down to some extent to to luck you know like always get a a bottle in the back of the head or or, yeah you did you get the shot (laughs) um well i i didn't really get any shots that i'd consider the shot but i i i got like a 
a series of pictures that I felt sort of encapsulated the atmosphere on the day. And where did they go? Did you post them back to the, the Australian Financial Review? No, so because I wasn't um, shooting for them on the day and because um, Fairfax, who owns the Financial Review, had a number of photographers who were covering it, I, I put them out, I, I offered them those photographs to other um, publications um, outside Australia. I was actually only a freelancer at that time, so I sort of, I was able to yeah. um, cross that line, whereas if I had been staff, I wouldn't have been legally able to do that. But I um, contacted a couple of editors and um, Time magazine ended up uh, publishing those pictures. But that was a big turning point for you, wasn't it? And I mean, that, to, to go from your previous job for six years and then to kind of get a taste of this situation, that kind of frontline um, situation. Yeah, and, it and was. Like, and let's talk about what, what, what happened after that. It was, it was. It was one of the first times that I'd sort of photographed real news, you know, breaking news, um, rather than um, more, I guess, what, what in the publishing world you'd call like a feature story or mm. profiles or things. This was like... Set up thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, and I realised that that was more kind of the stuff that I that I wanted to shoot. I wanted to shoot, you know, life as it unfolded and you know, in a, in a, all its extremes. And um, and that was what the photographers that I admired at that time were shooting. And you know, I really just wanted to emulate them. Yeah. Um, so it seemed, um, yeah, that was the way I sort of fell into that kind of photojournalism or documentary photography rather than, you know, uh, portraiture or, um, you know, commercial photography. Who, who were th- can you name some of the photographers that you ins- inspired you? Sure. Um, Dean Sewell, who was a... Um, I mean, within um, the, the Fairfax stable, um, there was a number, Dean Sewell, Nick Moyer, Tamara Dean, um, and then there were these sports photographers who were winning all these international awards at the time, Tim Clayton, Craig Golding, Steve Christo, um, Brendan Esposito, all these people that were um, really at the top of their field and at at the time where um, newspapers in Australia were really kind of punching above their weight and um, had a lot of... um, uh, They were very highly regarded internationally and and the photographers were... um, They had a lot of good photographers. They got a lot of space in the newspaper. They, They were held in high regard within Fairfax and... Yeah, I just like I used to just pour over the newspaper every day looking at their their photos, and yeah. you know I just wanted to be them. Yeah, cool. I remember back in London when we had um, our studio when I set up initially, I w- we were like a block away from Magnum, mm-hmm. um, which was real really cool. And I ended up designing some of their Magnum portfolios for them. Um, but I know that Trent Park uh, is Australian mm-hmm. member of Magnum. I always thought you were too, but. Um, um, is is his work also, also kind of an inspiration to you, or yeah, are you, are you kind of a similar level? Yeah, well, no, I'd, I'd never put myself in um, on on trance level. He's um, so he he was one of the um, founding members of a of an Australian collective of photographers that I ended up joining called Oculi, and oh, that yeah. and that was the that was kind of the core group of these um, press photographers that I. Um, that I gravitated towards, and and what they did in Oculi was, um, it was a it was a way of publishing the, their own personal work, which didn't ha- uh, c- could 
didn't make the page. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Trent was one of those founding members and he was, I mean, he, he's just extraordinary he, the way he sees and um, yeah, he was a, and still is a, a big inspiration to me. Mm. Do you think journalism, I mean, journalism has changed dramatically now, hasn't it too? Obviously the, the printed versus digital uh, form, sorry, mm. the, um, the magazines, when I was back in London working on an independent newspaper and the Saturday magazine, which was like a quick turnaround mm. and working with a, a photo editor and who was responsible for commissioning the work or finding the work and, and that whole kind of curated and editorial process was something magical about that and highly regarded. Mm. Whereas now, is it, it, it seems to be, as much as there's so many photographers out there or everyone's a photographer today, that, that I mean, I don't know if the craft is diminished as a result of that or whether there still is opportunities for photographers to of your caliber to kind of get those opportunities in in publications the opportunity the opportunities still exist but they're fewer and farther between and there's more people um mm. who are out there doing it um i think the the main thing that has contributed to the the decrease in um space for that kind of work is um, the the way um, big companies advertise now, mm. whereas in the past um, companies would advertise with newspapers and, yeah. and free to air TV, yeah. and then as digital came in and social media, that all moved online and you know to Facebook and Twitter yeah. and so on, and so the these newspapers just lost their main revenue stream and started to have to rely on more on subscriptions and things, and so budgets just got slashed and the photographer lists got slashed and the amount of space on the page for photos got cut. And the, um, and the, one of the other, you know, um, effects of um, news going online or, or information in general going online, published information um, going online, is that we now had analytics. We, could, we can see what people are reading and, what, mm. and then determine what people want to read. Yeah. And... Um, you know, overall, the trend was towards, you know, I guess more, um, you know, celebrity culture and yeah. um, rather than hard news and, um, you know, I guess serious journalism took a, took a hit as a result and there's, there was less demand for that kind of work and less space in the paper um, put aside for it. Let's talk about Afghanistan. How did you end up there? I, um, so after I left Fairfax, I spent a year and a half living in New York because I, um, I thought, okay, the publications that I want to work for, are, most of them are, are based in New York. And I thought, well, it makes sense that I go and base myself there too. Um, that was pretty naive at the time because I quickly realised that um, while those outlets were based there, um, so too were a million other photographers yes, who were literally. probably better than me and better connected than me. Um, and a lot of the um, photography that was populating those outlets was being shot, you know, o overseas. Yeah. And so when I... Um, and I, I didn't realise this at the time, but it, it struck me pretty quickly once I'd left. Um, a, a friend of mine, a journalist from the Financial Review, in 2013 told me that she was going, she wanted to go to Afghanistan to do a story on the Afghan cricket team who were about to 
um, come out to Australia the following year for the world, their first ever World Cup. She wanted to do a story for the Good Weekend in, in Australia. She asked me if I knew any photographers that she could work with. And I guess I'd, I'd started to become a little bit more interest, interested in um, what was happening in Afghanistan at the time, in Iraq. And, and without really thinking too much about it, I, I just said, well, I'll come. And so um, we set off, we got a three-month visa. Um, no, sorry, we got a month-long visa and we booked tickets um, that would see us get in and out within two weeks. And I was pretty, I was very nervous before I went. I'd never been to a, um, a country that was you know, in the middle of a war. And, you know, as, as most of the listeners, were, I, I think, were, would agree, um, if you're going to a country that, is at war you expect to get off a plane and walk into a war yeah and that's exactly what i expected because that's all you really hear of in the in the news um from a place like afghanistan and so i i honestly thought that the plane was going to get shot out of the sky before we even landed and it didn't take long for me to realize that that wasn't the case and there was while yes there was a war going on and there were um in kabul there were sporadic acts of extreme violence that most of the time, you know, the city sort of functioned as a, you know, developing city does and there were traffic jams and um, power shortages and, um, you know, car crashes and parties and all these things um, um, enmeshed in this um, broader picture of, of a war, which was happening most of the time in more rural districts. Mm. But you must have been... I mean, that took a lot of courage just to get on that plane. I mean, I just—I don't think I would have done that if you hadn't thinking that you're going to walk straight into a, a war. Yeah, I suppose at the time it kind of did, but then I, I also questioned my motivations at the time. I really thought, okay, I'm going for two weeks. I, it'll be something I'll be able to come back and I'll be able to go to a bar and tell girls that oh, I've just come back from Afghanistan. Honestly, yeah. like that was I. That was part of my motivation. It was like pretty cynical. Yeah. Um, I never thought I'm gonna, you know, I, I would love working over there, let alone want to stay and um, and and live there and and really um, embed myself in the culture. So how did that evolve? Because you, in the end, you're there for eight years. Mm. Um, so after the the two weeks came and went, um, that we that. Claire and I had initially planned on staying. Um, you know, we hadn't finished the work we wanted um, to accomplish mm-hmm. by then, so we extended for another two weeks. And then, and then we, you know, by that time we'd done a little bit of travel and we'd met, made some friends and, um, and we sort of realised we were enjoying ourselves, which is something I never <laughs> expected to be doing. Um, Especially in a war. No. And um, I think maybe I got, like, a job or two you know, just really small little little gigs. And um, and we ended up staying till the end of our three-month um, visas um, were, were valid. And by the end of that, I, I'd kind of fallen in love with the place. And Claire had to, I think, to an extent, but she had other stuff going on back home that she wanted to get back for. And so when we, when we came home, and we came home via Iraq, we spent a couple of weeks in Iraq doing some work there too, and um, but um, by the time we came home, I, w- I was set. Um, I think I probably flew back to New York, um, and and I was yeah determined to go back and to kind of 
base myself there indefinitely in Kabul. How did you get acclimatized to the whole, the different culture, language, and the country to that? You said you, you loved it. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of for me, and we talked about it the other day, I kind of feel like you're in the, in the right place at the right time. For me, it would be the complete opposite of that. I'd feel, unless I'd just feel incredibly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you feel vulnerable or in danger as well as loving being there? Yeah, at times for sure. And I think that's part of the atmosphere that um, that makes it uh, intoxicating and addictive. Um, there's nothing like adrenaline to um, add, a, add a layer of um, intensity to any situation, whether it's, you know, falling in love or, um, you know, surfing big waves um, for me or, you know, a, a deadline even. It's like it just... Uh, that little bit of um, added pressure or intensity, mm -hmm. um, whether it's yeah threat to life or um, professional um, professional expectations or pressure, it's like that intensity is um, you know you, some people thrive on it, and I, and I think um, it was I don't know if I'd say I thrived on it, but it definitely um, intensified my feelings about the place. Yeah, another book came out this year in May, uh, August in Kabul. Um, it's just, I, I don't know anyone who's had two books come out in the same year or within six months of each other. Um, and also it's so intrigued because it's not a book of photography, that book. It's a book of words. It's mm -hmm. a book of your experience, I guess, and your, as a, as a photojournalist, but as a journalist um, as well, which I thought was I, was, I was amazed by that, to mm -hmm. be honest. Because not often is a creative person or, or a photographer or designer or someone also good at writing and talk about how that came about because obviously just on the back of that um you started to kind of build a lot of opportunities to shoot for various publications or were you just shooting you're out there every day shooting and trying to capture something that and and then what just post that or or how, how does it work how did mm. you kind of you were finding the content for publications around the world is that how it kind of worked it happened in a few different ways um so traditionally photographers are usually dictated to about what they're going to photograph when it comes to um commissions yeah so most of the time i would be contacted by a, a photo editor from a newspaper or magazine and they would say okay we have this story that's been written by such and such and we need you to go and illustrate it with photos yeah um, it could also happen that you would be that that I would um, be in the right place at the right time, and I would um, have photographs that would um, that that could go with a story that hadn't yet been written. Yeah, and um, that happened a few times, and then and then um, the other the other way that I, I sort of grew into was w once I started writing a little bit um, was. Um, as a photographer, I could offer, a, I, I could pitch a, an idea for a story which I would both photograph and write for. And it was probably, the, the first couple of articles I wrote probably um, came about with, with circumstances that combine those, those two, uh, the two of the latter um, examples that I, I gave where I was in a situation where I had photographs that um, were, that someone wanted to publish, but they needed to be, explained and there was no one else i wasn't with anyone a writer at the time so it, i was the only one who could who could write about it 
And so with the help of some very patient editors, um, <laughs> I, I wrote stories that, that, um, that went with these pictures. Yeah. And then slowly, slowly, I, as I gained a bit of confidence with writing, I would um, start to uh, try to um, foreshadow events or um, come up with ideas for stories that, um, um, that I hadn't yet reported on or photographed and, and then pitch those ideas um, and then hopefully get... Um, commissioned with, um, you know, the offer of um, um, uh, expenses being paid and um, travel expenses and, and, and that kind of thing, um, which is ideally what you want rather than going out and spending time and money and, and risking your safety with the hope of getting a commission. Ideally, mm-hmm. you want to get the commission before you've gone out and done all those things. I remember when... You came in and you started to share. You said you wanted to do the book, and we talked to MUP, Melbourne University Press, about doing the book. And it was, um, and it's always intriguing that first moment when someone out of the blue says they want to create a book, and starting to imagine what that would look like in the end, like the size of it, the weight of it, the content, etc. Um, and that's like really, really. It's such a personal thing as well for you. Um, and for us, it's a kind of an opportunity to help tell your story in the way that's appropriate for you and the content. So very respectful for you as the hero. The content is really, really important. And how do we do justice to that? Or what's a, what's a light touch on that? And probably in a way, kind of that analogy probably is correct, I guess, you probably correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> as you do, um, is that you're kind of that light touch on in situations. You know, you're there, but kind of not there. You're there, but you're not part of that situation. You're capturing a bit like Cronulla. You're kind of come from, you know, Mossman or wherever it was mm. you were living to Cronulla, which is not that far away, mm. but you're kind of stepping into a situation without being fully fully mm. there, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're always an outsider. Yeah. I mean, that is that what gives you the... Is that, that going to help? I, I just want to think, how do you capture that that perspective that it's almost like it's the invisible kind of view mm-hmm. of something that nobody would have seen mm. ever. Like, you've captured something that was a second, a moment. Mm. I think the... The benefit of living in a place and getting to understand a culture and the geography and the the sociology of a place, um, I think that's what um, spending time in a place, um, like an extended period of time in a place, um, allows. You know, in my case, a, a journalist or a photographer to to offer. Whereas, um, you know, a lot of a lot of journalists and photographers, um, myself included, at some time, at, at some stages, you know, you fly into a place and you you have one story that you have to shoot, and you you know you know the the basic outlines of what you're what you're shooting, um, without maybe understanding all the, the nuances. Mm. Um, I think um, I, I really, I guess I well, I hope the what the book shows is that with time you get to uncover some of those subtleties that that are missed by um 
those who would just come in for um, you know to sort of run and gun for a, a week or a month or so and and you know make some incredible pictures and, and tell dramatic stories but maybe overall you don't get the, the that subtlety um, of the of the broader context which um, which I hope come comes out in the book mm. um, you know it's very easy to come into a place like Afghanistan for a short period and all you want to get is the, you know, the blood and guts and the, the fighting and the conflict and the, um, you know, the big sensational pictures. And um, like anywhere in the world, Afghanistan is that at times, but it's also a very, you know, it's, it's a place of, you know, uh, 10 million families and um, people going about their day-to-day life and, you know, working in the field or working in an office in Kabul and, you know, getting stuck in traffic and... All those, all those very mundane activities, which are as as valid a um, subject for uh, someone like myself as the as the more um, sensational, um, um, or stereotypical elements of, of a place like Afghanistan. So I guess it's a, it's a little bit about um, uh, adding some nuance to the to the stereotypes. When we were looking at the book design. Because obviously, creating a book, you need to look at the experience. You know, take your experience and the content, and think of the end user, the person who kind of buys the book or looks through the book, and kind of puts some kind of logic to why are all these images together? Yes, it is Afghanistan, and it is. It was eight years, so there was, you know, three hundred twenty thousand photographs or whatever it was. I thought it was a million. Mm-hmm. Let's say it was a million mm-hmm. plus. I'm sure it was. Mm-hmm. Um, that what is the logic of that? And I think that when we when we talked about that and we came up with this idea that per each chapter was a year, that started to kind of help. So basically the book is in chronological order. Mm-hmm. So from, from the beginning when you got there to when you left. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. And that I guess it helped a lot in terms of kind of for you putting into that order mm-hmm. as opposed to just finding images that work together. Mm-hmm. Of course we did that as we went, but rather than take eight years of images and putting you know putting them together on a spread for example yeah on a purely uh, visual basis yeah. yeah so that just that logic and that journey what do you think in terms of the journey from the beginning from the beginning to the day the day you got there to the day you left how had you evolved and how had the situation evolved um, do you feel that did you get more confident in time? Did you get better photographs? Did you, do you know what I mean? Like, did mm. did, did, did the situation get, you know, superheated? Mm. Um, I think I definitely became more confident in my own ability as a photographer mm-hmm. over that time, for sure. And that comes with just experience, but also recognition. You know, if people are, um, if you, you're like, you know, a sought-after person to, yeah. to photograph um, uh, something for someone, like you know that gives you confidence obviously yeah um i think um did did i start taking better photographs i actually when i look back on all that work some of my favorite photographs are still the ones i took in the first month or two there and i think that that's quite a normal interesting normal thing to happen i think when you come into a new place super fresh uh, yeah super fresh and you're wide-eyed and you're just looking at everything um for the first time like a child you know um, whereas over time you just you become a bit complacent about that and you you know you see wonderful things but you think oh you know I'll, I'll shit it next time or oh, I can't be bothered or mm. or maybe it's a little bit dangerous and ma- maybe it's from naivety as well like you maybe I sh- was shooting pictures that 
in places where I shouldn't have been and but only because I didn't know it so I, maybe I was handicapped in the end by my um, my assessment of risk and things remember when we were laying out the book and I was remember I, I would we would say and wing and I would say oh my god that's beautiful that photograph and I felt I felt like oh you know hang on you can't say mm. a picture of a war is beautiful like is that uh, there's something there was there was one which I, a shot that you didn't include in the book I think which was like a a gate that didn't have a gate it was just mm. a post I think or maybe it did have a gate it had mm. the but it didn't have a fence or mm. something and it was just sitting in this kind of barren hill and I just thought that was it was a beautiful picture but it's not a beautiful situation mm. how do you like what do you want people to feel from when they look through this book because there are Naturally, there are some very beautiful photographs of beautiful light, incredible light, uh, incredible moments of people, you know, positive images. But the equally, there's amongst that is death mm. and destruction. Yeah, that's a tricky one and something that often comes up in debates about photojournalism and ethics and things, you know, um, beautifying devastation or tragedy. Um, I think it's a. I understand that argument, but I also think, from my point of view, it's it's possibly the mark of a of an incredible photograph where you are able to encap encapsulate um, something tragic in a way that is visually beautiful, and and you know you almost create that that conflict and you um, that to use that term again cognitive dissonance for a for a viewer to question why you're reacting to. Um, the the visual um, qualities of, a, of an image while you know so on one on the one hand you've got you know you're seeing beauty and on the other um, you know it, it, it's um, what it's depicting is, is something quite different altogether well there's there's one image specifically that won numerous high highly acclaimed international awards uh, but one that really stands out is your 2016 gold I say Walkley 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 Award for the man on the operating table. And I've seen this image and it's, yeah, pretty incredibly moving, especially if you, then you tell the story, what it is specifically. An absolutely horrific story of a father of four that tragically lost his life during a routine surgery after a bombing by American forces on the hospital he was getting treatment at. Um, you took this harrowing image of uh, the scene, but you also wrote the article too. Talk a bit about that. Um, yeah, and that was one of those first stories I was referring to um, where I had these images that were quite powerful and evidence of um, uh, potentially a war crime, um, which no one else had and which needed words to go with them to explain what was being seen. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was, I mean, that th that photo was the culmination of, I was a took me about a week to get to that that spot um, and to, I mean, we don't have time here to explain how that happened. Um, actually, I think I explained it a little bit in the book, so there's a good, um, there there's go. a good excuse for a plug. But um, it, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was, I guess, um, you know, I was pretty determined to, to get to this hospital where this um, um, man that I found um, but had no idea um, was where he was when in the, in the week um, during which I was trying to get to the hospital, um, which had been 
it, it had become known, bombed by an American um, aircraft. And um, it was it was the first time something like this had happened, certainly in the time that I had been there. And it was something I, I wanted to try and try and get to. And as a freelancer, without um, the restrictions on my um, movements that some of the other yeah. um, big news outlets had, I could take on that risk myself, try and get there and not be, um, um, you know, not have um, editors worrying about my safety. So I, I sort of took that risk on myself and, and uh, put myself in a position where I could get to that hospital, which was in a city that was still um, in the middle of fighting. And, and I, I was able to get there and um, get into this hospital that had been bombed, which no other journalist had been into yeah. until then. And, and among a number of um, bodies that were still there a week after that, um, that bombing was this man on a, you know, in a room, in an operating theatre that, um, that had been damaged by the bombing, but it was, still, it was still standing. It hadn't been burnt out and you could very clearly see the operating table and this man whose body was mostly intact lying on top of it, but, but clearly was dead. So are the hospitals like a no-go zone, like safe zones normally? Yeah. So was this the story was that Americans have bombed a site that shouldn't be exactly yeah, yeah they have um, under international humanitarian law they have um, they are um, excluded from um, mi- as military targets so it was a story that you exposed that that actually had happened it, it was already clear that that had happened but it, it hadn't there hadn't been any photos that had come out as from evidence. inside the hospital um, as evidence and mm. and the extent to which the hospital had been damaged and um, the kind of people who were inside and had been killed as a result. And, you know, a lot of people claim that it was all Taliban that had been killed um, in, in the hospital. Um, and because I was able to find out who the man on the operating table was and who his family was and how, why he was in there, it was, I was able to... Um, it, that, that was evidence that it was not just Taliban in the hospital. There were, this guy was a husband and father of four who worked as a security guard. So how, how do these images, let's talk about your kind of mental health and how you dealt with that because, I mean, life is tough anyway, even in Mossman or <laughs> Sydney, we have issues and stuff. Um, but to be exposed to that on a daily basis, how did you manage that? How did it not affect you in a detrimental way yourself? I think for a lot of people who have experienced extreme violence or um, extreme adversity, a lot of the effects on mental health don't don't appear until long after the the events themselves. So, um, I mean, that's not always the case. But um, for me, you know, I think you're able to, like a lot, number of my colleagues, you're able to, you know, put that aside. You think, oh, you know, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'll be able to, um, I'll be able to, you know, walk out of this. And th- those the effects are. You know, they, they accumulate very slowly. So you think, oh, there's no harm in staying another day or another week or another year. Um, but, yeah, those... What you see in a place like Afghanistan, particularly as, as a journalist, those effects do accumulate for sure. Um, I mean, in Afghanistan, I, I was pretty conscious of just staying fit and healthy. So I sort of um, built up a, a crappy little gym in our, in our home and I'd, I'd you know get up a sweat one way or another every day um, and 
certainly talking among friends about you know uh, after a after significant events in Kabul that involve violence, we would often get together as friends and just you know talk about it um, in a way that you can't talk about with people outside Afghanistan who don't who have an experience or don't really understand it in a way that you often hear uh, military vet- veterans um, yeah. talking about how, how it's only other um, military veterans who with whom they can. Um, talk about and who understand it um and then since coming home it's actually for me i think it the harder thing coming home has been trying to get used to a more mundane day-to-day life where um and and find fulfillment in photography and journalism Mm. um with in an environment where the stories are don't have the same um, element of life and death that they did in, in Afghanistan, um, and it's it it can be yeah it has been I found it really difficult to find a, a purpose back here um, in the sort of year and a half since I left Afghanistan. Did you consider going to the Ukraine after that? Because obviously, do do you feel like um, the need to carry on with capturing these types of situations around the world? I think there's definitely an element of um, my ego that feels a um a an absence of fulfillment and so i guess the idea of um you know because working in afghanistan you're you know you're you're publishing photos constantly and you're you know getting recognition and awards and you know even um posting to social media people are like seeing you and appreciating what you do and then you come home and like all that stops content yeah content and so, um, I, I mean, to answer your question, like the thought occurred to me to go to Ukraine, but I, I quickly realised it wasn't, Ukraine wasn't my thing, you know. I'd, I'd fallen in love with Afghanistan, the country mm. that happened to be at war, not with war in a place that happened to be Afghanistan. And so I had oh, no connection to Afghanistan, uh, uh, sorry, I had no connection to Ukraine. So it didn't really make sense for me to go. And probably the only reason I would have gone would have been you know, to satisfy those, the urges of ego or for professional reasons to, to get work, um, but not to fulfil a, a dying, uh, like, a, like a, a craving inside me to cover, cover the story there. Well, how mundane are things? In Australia? Yeah, for you. You said come back to as much more main, mundane. Well, professionally, professionally, it's a lot. Um, harder to find the intensity um, in in work here for sure. Mm. Um, so I really have to sort of lower my standards in that sense. Um, it's, oh, I mean, it, the, the you know something my my, my girlfriend will um, attest to is is how um, hard I find it to see the obsession with trivial, superficial. Um, mm. The things that we, you know, that living in a city like Sydney um, um, instills in us. Yeah. And, yeah, the, I mean, the, 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 the goals and the aspirations and the, um, the, 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 the ambition here is, is very different. Whereas in a place like Afghanistan, for a lot of people, the only goal day-to-day is survival. Yeah. Um, whereas here it's like... Survival is um, assumed, yeah, and then it becomes you. You add this d- 
desire for luxury on top of that. So it becomes mm-hmm. about surviving in the most luxurious way possible, depending on your, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic status. And so that's, I find that hard to um, contend with. Well, you must find yeah, people kind of small talk, can people complaining about the weather as mm. it really does, no mm. matter how great it is, mm. or that kind of very silly just situation mm. you can't control. Um, that must really piss you off. Oh, I mean, it does, but, I, you know, I fall into that trap too and, you know, complaining about the price of petrol and, um, yeah. you know, but and, and worrying about, you know, everyone's worried about real estate and, I don't know, things that are, you know, relatively speaking, um, inconsequential, like they're not the sort of things we're going to be thinking about on our deathbed. No. Um, um, unlike, you know, a lot of the kind of the experiences that you might have in place like Afghanistan. Let's talk about surfing because um, I go up to the northern beaches a lot. I ha- I'm still not surfing. I'm going to do some <laughs> lessons with some guys up there. A lot of people surf in Sydney and you're a big surfer and you, I think you came to it relatively late. Yeah. Um, not, not that you're that old but you do that it's not just a sport is it? You do that for your own mental mm-hmm. health. And I, I talked to so many guys about this, and, and, and women, and kids mm-hmm. who do it every single day, get mm-hmm. up and go surfing. And they do it because, again, the wave, the the situation is, it's not constant. It's not the same. Every day is changing. Mm-hmm. It's 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 new. And I, that's kind of really, it's a bit like your photojournalism. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's kind of, it's a bit of a plan, mm. but who knows what's going to happen. Mm. Does that kind of feel... Is that a good analogy for that situation for you? Mm. Or is it complete escapism? Like, what is it? So, I mean, yeah, I, I was pretty obsessive about surfing in the 2000s. And then um, I guess photography started to um, take precedence over um, surfing at some stage. And and so now well, I still love surfing um, and it'll always be a part of my life. But it's not, I'm not obsessive like I was in the past about it. And actually, since I've come back, um, I find it pretty hard. Like, I feel like surfing in Sydney for me, where where the waves are often extremely crowded and where the mood in the water is often pretty um, aggressive, I just I I'm not interested in dealing with it, and oh. I don't find it. It doesn't have the sort of okay. um, it doesn't provide that kind of um, outlet that once did for me and so I've, I've actually started just ocean swimming instead and I get oh. I get the same um, uh, you know you don't get the adrenaline rush that you do in surfing or that um, you know the excitement or the it's not as um, it's not like a culture that you can um, you know you, you're not um, you don't get excited about swimming in the way that you do about surfing with your friends but it's very um, it's something that's um, I find very um, calming and um, meditative and I always feel very um, it gives me a lot of energy mm. so like I'm always the most productive I'll ever be in a few hours after I go for a swim you know it just it just lifts your all your um, you know serotonin endorphins and all yeah, yeah, yeah. And whatnot what's next for you I guess you're gonna be promoting the book and and doing an exhibition and things like that yeah that's that's what's next immediately um after that i i mean i've been back here now for a year and a half in which time i've done the the two books but haven't really produced any new work as such um 
and I'm finally finding that I'm starting to get some inspiration to produce some some new work. Um, I think I will probably go back to Afghanistan for a visit um, sometime in the next few months, maybe before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to shoot some pictures, tell some stories in the Northern Territory, which I visited a couple of times this year and mm-hmm. found us in, in Australia anyway, a similar kind of intensity there um, in day-to-day life, um, at, at least by Australian standards, to mm. that which I've found in, in Afghanistan. Have you designed your life? No, I'm never. I mean, have I designed my life? I, I suppose I, I see that question as um, do, I, do I have an intentional kind of plan mm. for my life and the answer has always been no I'm not very I've never been a planner I find it pretty hard to project myself into the future um, so I'm, I often kind of just take opportunities as they arise mm-hmm. um, which is pretty fortuitous way to live but also frustrating and um, and hard to it's hard with relationships for sure um, but so the answer is no <laughs> okay good good um, but I guess you're just, you're ambitious. I mean, the fact that you've kind of went from not making any money at the review, mm-hmm. finally got a paid job there, mm-hmm. and then they kind of like, there's that seeking to find whether it's a situation or, or a career. Because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, very few people bring out two books in one, one mm-hmm. year, as I said before. So, like, it's, there's something there that's driving you right for Mm -hmm. that kind of Mm -hmm. capturing the work uh putting your life at risk often Mm -hmm. and 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 then wanting to share Mm -hmm. share that content Mm -hmm. do you feel the book's done that well that remains to be seen (laughs) we'll see how people react to it well yeah i I hope excuse me i hope um it does and i hope it um I don't know, I've always found it very hard to talk to people about my life in Afghanistan. It's, um, you know, it's just something that, like anything, those who haven't um, experienced it find it hard to connect to it. And so I hope at least this book will, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of myself in the book, in the writing, um, which, mm. which I hope will um, inject a, or allow um, people who haven't been there to uh, connect with the situations a, l- a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so fingers crossed. And it's not journalism. It's quite. It's incredibly personal that narrative. You know, it's in it, and it's genuine and, and honest, etc. Like it's not flowery in any way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just real. Mm. Yeah, it's a combination of journalism and my own sort of experience, as, as if I might write it yeah. in, a, in a journal. I suppose. For anybody listening in, which I, there will be a lot of you, uh, and you're keen to buy Andrew's latest book, this is Afghanistan, 2014 to 2021. You get a copy via Melbourne University Publishing. The website is www.mup.com.au or by clicking the link in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for today catching up. Thanks a lot for having me, Vince. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of Design Your Life with the incredible photojournalist Andrew Quilty. Tune to the next episode where I catch up with Daniel Goldberg, the Canada-based founder of the interior architecture studio State of Craft. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.